in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. C.S. Lewis tells us about Aslan, the lion, who is a figure of Jesus, and what happened one time when he entered a castle with a few of his friends. The castle is actually the home of the white witch, and Aslan and Susan and Lucy find it filled with all of these statues of animals and people who've been turned to stone by the white witch. And so Aslan enters and he begins bringing them back to life by breathing on them. And he begins with another lion. Uh, Right before he does this, Susan says to Lucy, hush, Aslan's doing something. And Lucy says, oh, Susan, look, look at the lion. C.S. Lewis then says, I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second, after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back. Then it spread. Then the colors seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane and all the heavy stony folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, the lion went bounding after him and frisking round him and whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Of course, the children's eyes turned to follow the lion, But the sight they saw was so wonderful that they soon forgot about him. Everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing round him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now a blaze of colors. Glossy chestnut sides of centaurs, indigo horns of unicorns, dazzling plumage of birds, ruddy brown of foxes, dogs, and satyrs, yellow stockings and crimson hoods of dwarfs, and the birch girls in silver, and the beach girls in fresh transparent green, and the larch girls in green so bright that it was almost yellow. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sounds of happy roarings, brayings, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stamping, shouts, hurrahs, songs, and laughter. This is a picture of what Jesus came to do in his first advent, in his first coming, to set the prisoners free. And it's what we'll see in Isaiah chapter 49 today. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. We're continuing our Christmas series that we started last week, and we're looking at the four servant songs that are recorded in Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is the servant who has come to breathe life back into us. 
to unfreeze us. He came to breathe on us and turn the church from a frozen museum of statues into a zoo filled with frolicking animals, to use the analogy by C.S. Lewis. Jesus came to set us free so that we would worship him and go bounding after him and frisk around him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. That's worship. Licking Jesus on the face, if you will. Worship is is being so full of joy because of what Jesus has done for us that we chase after him and play and bound after him and whimper with joy and jump all over him and kiss him and lick his face. Like what your dog might do when they see you. That's worship. Like when you've been gone on vacation and you come home and your dog is just wagging its tail and it runs in circles around you and it jumps up on you and it licks you all over your face, that's worship. Not that we lick Jesus' face because that's weird, but that's the idea. And that's the heart behind what C.S. Lewis is getting at. And it's what Isaiah is moving us toward, which we'll see in verse 13 in a bit. But recall what we saw last week in Isaiah 42, the first servant song. God called us to behold his servant Jesus. He called us to get a good look at him, to check him out. God said to us there, behold my servant But in the second of Isaiah's servant songs, we now have Jesus, the servant, addressing us. And he's now saying to us, listen to me. Jesus is saying, who needs me enough in their life to listen to me this morning? Who needs me so bad because their life is a mess And they're so desperate that now they'll actually stop and listen. Why does Jesus call us to listen to him? Because he knows that we all listen to thousands of other voices all the time. He knows that we are so prone to listen to other people, to listen to ourselves, to listen to our idols, And we rarely slow down enough to really listen to him and to take him at his word. And so today, on the second Sunday of Advent, from the second of Isaiah's servant songs, Jesus, the word made flesh, is calling us to listen to the prophetic gospel with a heart that is so open to him that we gladly accept his word With the empty hands of faith. Even when it cuts deep. Even when it reveals hard truths that call us to change. And to forsake our precious idols and our darling sins. In other words, Jesus wants us to stop treating him as some theory. That means then that listening closely to Jesus is the most important thing that we could ever do. And when we do slow down enough to listen to him, 
he becomes real. He's no longer a theory. He's no longer a chapter in a systematic theology book. He becomes real again to us. So he wants us to turn to him again this morning, to listen to him and to trust him. And if we do, then guess what? He promises to save us. If we'll stop and listen to him, he promises to save us. To save us from his wrath, if we haven't trusted in him yet, that's important. If you've not repented of your sins and you're trusting in Jesus alone, he wants to save you from eternal condemnation in hell. So it's important that you listen to him in that regard first. He will save you. But he also promises to save us from us. To save us from our puny little kingdoms of self. That's good news, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I need to be saved from me. He promises to save us from us. It's why he came. It's what Advent is all about. God saves sinners. And he does it through his son, the servant. So Isaiah chapter 49, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Right off the bat, we are pressed with a decision. Will we humble ourselves and listen to God's servant? I mean, the first line, the first lyric of Isaiah's second servant song gets in our faces and challenges us. Will we listen to God's servant? This is Jesus speaking to each and every one of us here in verse 1. And he says, hey, listen to me, y'all. Like when you say listen to me to someone, when you say, hey, listen to me, what are you getting at when you say that? You want people to trust you. You want people to believe you. And that's what the servant is doing here. Listen to me. You can trust me. But notice who Jesus is addressing here. It's the nations, the coastlands, Gentiles, non-Jews. Us, in other words. Most of us are non-Jews, Gentiles here. We saw this back in Isaiah 42. The coastlands were awaiting God's law. Isaiah 42 verse 4. So the servant comes to reach the world, not just the nation of Israel. And this is where the nation of Israel went wrong. They did not take serious their call to take the gospel to the nations. They hunkered down. They settled into the lazy boy of their own self-righteousness with clicker in hand. And they began to see the Gentile world as ugly and dirty. And so they avoided them. This is why the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to thrust the predominantly Jewish church out into mission into the Gentile world. Out to people that they saw as ugly and dirty and gross. We got to take the gospel to them? Yeah, go wait for the Spirit. And so the Spirit came to sink the church up with the servant of Isaiah 49. It isn't that Israel was some kind of special people. 
God simply picked them. He simply chose them as the means through which he would work in the world to help prepare for the coming of Jesus. He could have chosen any people group, anybody. But he chose them to prepare the world for the Messiah. And that's why, as Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke notes, that after Pentecost, the apostles never mention the national restoration of political Israel. After Pentecost, they do beforehand, are you now going to restore the kingdom, Jesus? Wait for the Spirit. And after Pentecost, they never mention the political restoration of Israel again because now they understand that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in the servant Jesus and they now await the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Again, to quote Bruce Waltke, The New Testament does not teach a millennium in which Israel will be reconstructed as a political kingdom once again, but rather it teaches a realized eschatology in which Christ's kingdom has come in fulfillment in the church today and will come in consummation in the new cosmos. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus has come, and now there is one new man, one people of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 2, you can read it, verses 11 to 22. And that's the heart of what the servant of Isaiah came to do, to unite Jews and Gentiles as one new man, one people of God. That means then, as we see from Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and hundreds of other passages in the Old Testament, God's plan all along was to redeem a people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. All of that Revelation chapter 5 stuff was the eternal heartbeat of God. And so now in verse 1, Jesus says, That the Lord called him from the womb, called him my name when he was in Mary's belly. We see this in Matthew 1 where the angel tells Joseph what to name their baby boy. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Are you saved from your sins? Then you're a part of the people of God, right? One new man. He will save his people from their sins. Are you saved from your sins? Welcome to the people of God. As we saw last week, what does Jesus' name mean? It means the Lord saves. It means Yahweh saves. And Jesus came to save Israel to do what they failed to do, but also to save Gentiles and to unite them as one people of God. Now look at verse 2. The servant says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Here we see that Jesus, the word made flesh, is a sharp sword and a polished arrow in God's hand. What does that mean? What Jesus means here is that he is able to see past our foolish excuses for sin, our foolish excuses that we make in life. 
the way that we often defend ourselves, he's able to see past that. In other words, we cannot fool the word made flesh. We can't fool Jesus. We can't trick him. He is able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, as the preacher of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12 of his book. Jesus is saying his word pierces. The sword was used for close combat. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come as the word made flesh and pierce Israel. I'm close to them. Also, he says, I'm a polished arrow to be shot far away to the coastlands who are awaiting my law. His word pierces Israel and the nations. So that means then, for us, the greatest blessing in all our lives is to be pierced with his piercing sword and wounded with his polished arrows. The greatest blessing is to be exposed. And we don't want that, do we? Because it's embarrassing to see what's really deep down inside each one of us. It's embarrassing to be exposed, but the greatest blessing is there. To have our hearts laid bare before God, to be honest with God, to get real with the real Jesus. Freedom comes when God exposes our hearts and he pierces us. Why? Because that's when the healing comes. That's when repentance comes. That's when refreshment comes. You want more of Jesus in your life during the holiday season? Just be honest with him. Just be honest with him. He responds to honest people who lay their hearts before him and have them pierced by his word. That's when refreshment comes. Does it sting when we're exposed by his word? Yes. Does it hurt to be cut by the word? Yeah. Is it embarrassing? Oh, yeah. It's embarrassing what's in my heart. If I put it up on the screens, none of you would ever want to be with me anymore. My family, well, they already know what's in my heart. But there are deeper layers that would scare them. They'd say, Mom, can Dad move out? He's kind of creepy and weird. I'm embarrassed by what's deep down inside my heart. But it's also the greatest blessing to come face to face with what's deep down inside your heart because then your idols are exposed. You actually begin to see your idols for what they are and you dump them. You break up with them. And then you come back to your first love. To have your heart exposed, you can break up with your idols. I read a news article uh, yesterday about a teenager, how they text everything today and there's just letters and you're like, you know, LOL, whatever. And this boy shame on him, texts his girlfriend the letters B-U, which means break up. I'm breaking up with you. But all he put was the two letters B-U in his text. When our hearts are laid bare before God and we see our idols for what they are, we should then text our idols and just say B-U. Breaking up with you. I'm going back to Jesus, my first love. See, God would rather lead us by still waters. Take us by the hand and lead us by refreshing still waters. But if we aren't listening to Jesus, if we're not listening to the Isaiah 49 servant and his word, then he will cut us. He will pierce us because he loves us. 
And he loves us enough to lance us when we don't listen to him. So let me ask you this morning, what voices are you listening to in your life, in your heart? See, sometimes the only way that we'll listen to Jesus is the hard way. Let's decide to listen to him this Advent season. Let's let him gently lead us by still waters and bring us comfort when we have failed. And Israel failed. As a nation, they did not live up to their calling to take the gospel to the nations. Here in verse 3, Jesus says that he's the real Israel. He's the perfect Israel who brought glory to God. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 3. And he, the Lord, said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. What's interesting is that the word here for glorified is not the usual word that we see in the Old Testament for glorified or glory. Normally it's the word kavod, which means heavy or, or weighty. In other words, God is he's heavy, he's profound. He will not be trivialized by us. But here... You probably have a footnote in your English Bible. It's the word for beautiful. So in Jesus, the Isaiah 49 servant, the beauty of God is on display. The triune God is beautified. His beauty is put on display in the Isaiah 49 servant through his life, death, and resurrection. Put on display for all of us to see and to be satisfied and to enjoy him. All that God is for us in his son. He's holding out to us today and saying, it's free, take it. Why not? Dump your idols and just receive from me. Do you see Jesus as beautiful? Is he your treasure, your first love? If you don't see him as beautiful, Do what Isaiah told us last week. Behold my servant. Take up the Bible and read about Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you his beauty, to show you the beauty of the Isaiah 49 servant. Behold him in the scriptures. And when you behold Jesus in the scriptures, you might be surprised that he struggled with feelings of despondency. Really? Jesus struggled with feelings of despondency? Yep, look at verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Jesus is telling us here that he struggled with feelings of despair. Wow, did you know that? Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this at all. As we'll see in a few weeks, Isaiah calls Jesus the man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected by his family, despised and rejected by his hometown, despised and rejected by the 12 disciples, despised and rejected by the religious leaders, despised and rejected by the nation of Israel. He really was a man of sorrows, and he really was acquainted, familiar with grief. For instance, what did Jesus say to the disciples, his closest friends? In Matthew 17, 17, he said, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? Wow. 
How long am I going to have to put up with y'all? Again, let me stress, Jesus never sinned, ever. But clearly he was saddened and grieved by the lack of faith in the disciples. And on another occasion, the Pharisees argued with him. And Mark tells us that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Mark 8, verse 12. (sighs) With the Pharisees. And you could see why, if you know the Pharisees. Even Jesus' own family thought he had lost his marbles. Mark tells us in chapter 3 of his gospel that his family said, He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Our brother is crazy. They thought it, his own family thought he was crazy. Do you think that that comment just bounced off of Jesus? That it didn't hurt him? That it didn't wound him? It broke his heart to hear his family say this. As Isaiah tells us here, as Jesus, the servant, tells us here, he had moments in his humanity when he was tempted to believe that his mission was in vain, that it was all for nothing. But it never led him to despair. Isaiah tells us. He never gave in to utter despair. He recalibrated his heart. He entrusted it all to his Father in heaven, and the Lord strengthened him. Unlike the nation of Israel, and unlike you and me, the setbacks of ministry did not drive Jesus to despair and bitterness. He went to his Father in prayer. He trusted God, and you can too. You can trust Jesus when he says to you, Listen to me, because he's been there. He knows what it is like to suffer. He knows what it is like when people accuse you of things that are not true. He knows what it is like when people lie about you, slander you, and spread false things that they have no idea about, but they're spouting words. Jesus knows what that pain is like. You can trust him. You can listen to him this morning. He didn't live in an ivory tower. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to use my superpower, Holy Spirit powers now to, to override my humanity so I don't feel any hurt, have any pain in my heart. Holy Spirit, shh, no pain, bounces off of me. He was real. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And if you are acquainted with grief this Advent season, you can trust him with your heart. You can listen to him. Let's listen to what else he says to us. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So Jesus is telling us here that the servant's task was to restore Jacob to God. 
Restore the nation back to God, that Israel might be gathered to Yahweh once again. This is the supreme task of the servant, to restore God's people to God himself. This is something that God had intended from the beginning, to restore Israel and to restore the nations. This isn't plan B. All the way back in Genesis 12, we read that Yahweh said to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it was always God's intention to extend his saving grace to the Gentiles, to those beyond Abraham's family, and to then adopt them into the family of Abraham. And that's why we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. That's why. That song was in God's heart in eternity past. One day they're going to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them. Yeah. The point of Genesis chapter 12 is that God so loved the world that he called Abraham. The point of Genesis 12 is that God so loved the world that he called Abraham. And the point of Isaiah 49 is that God so loved the world that he called his servant Jesus to execute that very plan through his life, death, and resurrection. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so Jesus in his first advent, in his first coming, embodied what the nation of Israel had failed to be. He is the perfect Israel. He brings the blessing of Abraham to the nations. God had called Israel to serve the world, but the light of the gospel, but they saw the Gentile world as vile sinners. They didn't put the beauty of the Lord on display, and so God sent his servant. God brought his presence down. Jesus came to show those in the gutter of sin the beauty of the Lord. This is what Advent is all about. To show those in the gutter of sin the beauty of the Lord. The Word became flesh and dwelt among gutter dwellers in order to reveal the beauty of the Lord. He came to vile, unpleasant people like you and me. And that's how Israel saw the nations, as vile and unpleasant. But they didn't know that they were just as vile and unpleasant as the nations, as Gentiles. And that's why Jesus is the perfect Israel, who shows the beauty of the Lord to sinners because Israel failed to do this. And so we see, like the old hymn says, there is a wideness in God's mercy. It's not limited to Israel. There's room for Gentiles, room for the coastlands, room for the nations. There's room for even the vilest of sinners. And that means that no one is too far gone. Kim Crandall, who spoke here earlier this year at one of our women's events, says, The good news is that God loves the real version of you. Not the cleaned up, funny, talented, presentable you. Grace is for the gutter dwellers. Grace is for the vilest of sinners. 
Jesus loves the real us. Now, we like to doll ourselves up, don't we? And make ourselves presentable. We like to impress people, give the impression that we have it all together. Our family's not that bad. We're not that dysfunctional. Jesus loves the real you. The you that struggles with fears. The you that has conversations with people. And you're like, why did I say that? I'm such an idiot. Why did I open my mouth and say that? What are they going to think of me? Jesus loves the real you that gets angry at your coworker. Jesus loves the real you that can't stand your mother-in-law. I have two, by the way. He loves the real you. Not the talented, funny, presentable you. The nation of Israel saw the nations as vile, unpleasant, gutter dwellers. And they thought they themselves, the nation of Israel, because God had chosen them to take the gospel to the nation, they thought they were the cleaned up, talented, presentable ones. But the servant of Isaiah 49 comes along and pierces them with the word, with his sword. And Israel did not like that diagnosis. That's why they despised Jesus. Jesus was deeply despised, abhorred by the nation of Israel, abhorred by his own people. And yet, as verse 7 tells us, the kings of the world would come and bow down before him in worship. By the way, I have no issue with either of my mother-in-laws. I mean, they're sinners, I'm a sinner, but I just as I'm saying that, I'm like, oh man, Heather's going to give it to me later. <laughs> If there's anything messy in that relationship, it's more than likely on my end because I'm the sinner. just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> Saving the marriage this morning. God saves sinners and preachers save their marriages. The question for us this morning is this. Will you fall down and worship him like the nations here? In verse 7, kings and nations will prostrate themselves will you open your heart to him will you open your ears will you bound after him will you frolic around him will you whimper with delight and chase after him and lick him the servant of isaiah 49 says to you today listen to me and if you listen you'll be free do you need him enough this morning to listen to him? See, Jesus wants to retune our ears so that they can hear the word of God again. It's only as we listen to Jesus and listen to the word made flesh that we can escape our fantasies. It's the only way. These crafty worlds that we make in our eyes, these ideal worlds that we wish we could live in or that we do live in. Jesus, the word made flesh, is the only one that can speak into our fantasies and pull us away from them. It's only as we listen to the servant that we really enter into reality with God. Are we willing to listen to God's servant this Advent? I mean, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we listen to him? He's holy, he's all infinitely glorious, all powerful, and he comes to us. He comes to the gutter and says, listen to me. Why wouldn't we listen to him? I mean, listen to his job description in verses 8 through 13 and see if your heart is not warmed to him this morning. In verses 8 through 13, he's like Aslan walking into the, the white witch's courtyard. He's breathing on people. 
And it's what he did for you if you're in union with him by faith. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. What do we bring to this relationship with God? Isaiah tells us here. Did you catch it? Darkness. Hunger, thirst, nakedness, need. And what does the servant of Isaiah 49 bring? Light, food, water, clothing, provision. This is how God saves sinners. He shows favor. He brings salvation. He enters into our darkness. He meets our needs. He takes us by the hand and leads us out of dark, damp dungeons to still waters and green pastures where we hunger and thirst no more. This is the gospel. This is the gospel for gutter dwellers like you and me. Isaiah tells us that the Lord will smash down the mountains and raise up the highways. In other words, God says, I'm going to make it easy for you to come home. Okay? You don't have to climb up the mountain. You don't have to try to climb a way out of a ditch. I'm going to smash the mountains down. I'm going to raise those things up and make it level. I'm going to make it easy for you to come home. I love that about Jesus. He makes it easy for us to return to him anytime we want to return to him. We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to read Hebrew. You just come back. You can have all of Jesus today. He's made it easy. He tells us right here, just listen. Just listen to me. Receive his free grace. Receive his free gift with the empty hands of faith. This morning I was thinking about this quote by Gerhard Ford. I said it to myself. You'll get it in a second. He said, we are justified freely For Christ's sake, by faith, without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit, or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The confessional answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. I had a hard time believing the gospel this morning. This whole weekend, I was just, just in, the, in the funk. And I told myself this morning, just shut up and listen. Sometimes you have to say that to yourself. Shut up and listen to what Jesus says. 
And so let's get over ourselves today, shall we? We're not that impressive anyway, are we? We're not that impressive. We have a king who is a servant. And he wants to serve us and prosper us and bring renewal and revival and refreshment to us this Advent. He's not here to just squash us like he gets kicks out of seeing us miserable. He wants to bring refreshment to your life. Why would we ever stiff arm him? He has been nothing but good to us. He has nothing but good things for us. So don't despise him today. Welcome him. He makes it so easy for us. Just admit your need. Just confess your sin. And he will meet you with all of this Isaiah 49 stuff right here. He meets us with his comfort at the place of our failures. That's good news. It's good news for me because I fail all the time. Contrary to what we might think, contrary to what we might have heard, contrary to what you may have heard in other sermons, God's deepest intention toward us is comfort, not law, not demand, not get your act together. His deepest intention is comfort. We see that in verse 13. Yahweh comforts his rebellious people and has compassion on them. How could it be otherwise? As we saw in our Advent reading earlier, if the focus of Christianity were our sins, then our futures would shut down. Game over. But Christianity is all about the saving grace of God as seen in his servant. Advent, then, is a celebration that God saves sinners. Are we sinners? Yes. Do we sin? Yes. Do we suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. Even when we don't act like the people of God, he still identifies with us and calls us his people. Verse 13. He still calls us his people even when we're far away in exile like Isaiah's audience. That means then that you may have made a total wreck of your life. You may have totally messed up your life and it's clearly your fault. And you admit that. You may have turned your back on and shut your ears to God's word. But the good news today is he'll meet you today with his comfort, with his compassion Isn't that wonderful? I love that about Jesus. He comes with comfort. He doesn't come with, I told you so's. He doesn't come with, shame on you's. He comes to you today with comfort in hand for all of your failures. All of your failures. Wherever you failed him this week, wherever you failed him this year, he comes with comfort and he says, Listen to me. Where in your life do you need to listen to the Isaiah 49 servant? If you do listen, you won't regret it. But God's purpose is not only that you and I enjoy the comfort of the gospel. It's also that we increase our enjoyment of the gospel by spreading that joy to others, all to the glory of God. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul and Barnabas quote Isaiah 49, 6 to justify their ministry to the Gentiles. So not only do we enjoy the benefits of the gospel, God wants us to share his love with others. 
There are people in your life who need to know that God loves them. They need to be pierced with God's law so that they can run to Jesus to be saved. Will you tell them this Advent season? I've shared these statistics before, but according to the Barna Group, the Central Coast is ranked number two in all the United States on the never-churched list. A list of cities where the highest number of people have never, ever been to church once. In all the cities of the U.S., the Central Coast is ranked number two on the never-been-to-church list. Number one is West Palm Beach, Florida, Fort Pierce, Florida, coming in at 17%. And then we have Santa Barbara, Santa Maria, San Luis Obispo, 16%. 16% of the Central Coast have never been to church once. God has us here for them. This is hard ground. That's what I love about grace and what Jesus is doing here is we're a gospel-centered church in one of the hardest places in America. Not the Bible Belt. We're in a hard place. And Jesus is moving for his glory, not our glory, for his. We are also ranked number nine on the top post-Christian cities in America. So there's eight spots up in the northeast, no surprise. One spot up in the northwest by Seattle, no surprise. And there we are. Number nine, 54% of our population. Over half of our population is post-Christian. Post-Christian means they have no biblical framework. Mostly like, most likely never been to church once. They don't know the Bible. They don't know who Adam and Eve are. When you go to share the gospel with them and say, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they're like, where? Is our garden, where? In slow? Is our garden in slow? Who's Adam and Eve? They're your cousins? They got married in the garden? They sinned? They have no idea. They think Jesus is a curse word. And they're lost. And Jesus put you here. Put me here. So we could tell them the good news that God loves sinners. That God loves the real them. So during this season of Advent, let's get rid of our narrow-minded, rinky-dink ideas of God and let's take him at his word. Let's believe his promises this Advent season. Let's listen to him. Where do you need to listen to the Isaiah 49 servant today? Where has he, has he been speaking to you in your life? He knows better, right? His way is better. And sometimes when we don't listen to him, he loves us enough to knock us down and get our attention. He would rather lead us beside still waters and green pastures. He'd rather we enjoy his refreshment. But like Israel, who did not listen and were not a light to the nations, we too sometimes don't listen and we don't do what we know we should do. And Jesus loves us enough to come along and pierce us with the sword of his word, with the polished arrow of his word. And when we cry, uncle, he comes to comfort us in our failures. So let's stop fighting God. I mean, he always wins anyway, right? That's how dumb we are. We think we can wrestle God and win. Let's stop fighting God. Let's slow down enough. Let's humble ourselves and let's listen to him. Let's listen to his word. Let's open up to him. And if we do, he will come to us like Aslan and he will breathe his spirit on us and he will set us free. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Then a 
tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back. Then it spread. Then the color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stoned, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stony folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. Now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. As Susan said to Lucy, hush, Aslan's doing something. Let me say to you, hush, Jesus is doing something on the central coast. He's doing what Aslan does here. He's bringing creatures to life. And they will respond by licking Aslan. And that's just a picture of worship. Worship is seeing Jesus. It's listening attentively to the Isaiah 49 servant, the Aslan figure, and bounding after him and frisking around him and whimpering with delight when the gospel gets deep down in your heart and jumping up to lick his face. Let's do that. Let's bound after him, frisk around him, whimper with delight, and jump all over him and lick his face with joy. That's worship, and he's worthy of all of it. And so Jesus says to all of us today, who here needs me enough to listen? Who here needs me so bad because they're desperate and their life is a mess to stop and listen? Jesus is looking for people who will listen to him. Not because he needs you, but because he has everything that you need. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel that you save sinners. We don't deserve it. Thank you that you keep loving us after you've saved us and called us into your family and we keep pursuing other lovers and you keep loving us thank you for loving us enough to pierce us with your word and call us home thank you for making it easy to come home help us to come home today renew our first love help us to listen to you and to go share your love with others for your glory on the central coast in your name we pray amen